Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Like Dr. O'Donnell said, this is my very first time at Christendom College. And uh, it is very interesting coming from Maine where we usually get clobbered with snow. It's funny to watch the national news and hear that in Virginia you're under four feet of snow. And, and as Dr. O'Donnell said, we look out and see mostly green grass in Maine right now. And we keep looking at the TV screen and saying, those poor people in the south, <laughs> those poor people in the south. But um, so, and I also uh, think it's important to share with you, for any of you who have to do the shoveling right now, is. What my secret is in the winters in New England, in Maine, is as I'm out there shoveling, see our snow, our snow banks get to be over my head. So when I'm shoveling in Maine during our toughest winters, I have to throw the snow over my head to just get it over the snow banks. And I always tell my neighbors during blizzards, this builds character, this builds character. And, and uh, also Ash Wednesday starts on Wednesday. And, um, and just remember what St. Bernadette said when she saw the Blessed Virgin Mary during one of the apparitions in Lourdes, France. After seeing the Queen of Heaven herself, St. Bernadette turned to the crowds and all she said was, penance, penance, you know? So if you have to shovel or if you have to endure it, just remember, we all have to do a little bit of penance before we get into heaven, so. And this is kind of a beautiful way to do it, too. It's very pretty out there, it's gorgeous. Um, before I really delve into what I wish to share with you this evening, I just want to thank Dr. Timothy O'Donnell, obviously, for, in, for inviting me to come to your campus and, and share this time with all of you. And like I said, I'm thrilled to be here. I was invited to come and share with you my personal friendship with a saint, my personal experiences with Mother Teresa of Calcutta, India. And I knew Mother Teresa throughout the course of 11 years. It always stuns me even to be able to say that. What a, what a gift from God to say that I knew a saint throughout the course of 11 years. And after my very first trip to India, where I showed up at Mother Teresa's doorstep to help her serve the poorest of the poor, after I returned to American soil after my first trip of being with a saint for the summer, um, I remember somebody in my workplace found out that I was friends with Mother Teresa. And she approached me one day and said, you know Mother Teresa? And I said, yes, and she said, that's like saying, you know, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> I never forgot that. I never, at first I was confused, like, what do you mean, Mother, Ther Mother Teresa and Abraham Lincoln, first of all. And after I pondered her words for a few minutes, I realized, actually, she's right. You know, Abraham Lincoln is a historical figure who will be known for centuries and centuries, for generations to come. Mother Teresa, in much the same way, will be known for centuries. And instead of comparing knowing Mother Teresa to knowing Abraham Lincoln, I guess I would, I would compare it more to, say, to being able to say I knew St. Francis of Assisi. You know, it's kind of like that, saying that I used to hang out with St. Francis and hold hands with him and pray with him and serve the poorest of the poor with him. So it is, it's incredibly humbling, you know, to have been so close with a saint. And, and it was very different in India when I showed up with Mother Teresa. I was with her every single day while the two of us were together in Calcutta. Um, and I was with her morning and night and in her, at her house. I would hang out with Mother Teresa at her house, at the Mother House in Calcutta. And uh, when Mother Teresa, I noticed when Mother Teresa came to the United States, when she spoke at an event in the United States, that she had bodyguards and like cardinals and bishops and police officers and, and the crowds. I remember seeing her speak at a church in Massachusetts and 5,000 people came. And, Naturally, everybody wanted to touch Mother Teresa. 5,000 people wanted to go near her and speak with her and touch her and couldn't get near her because she's only four foot 11. She's only up to my shoulders and she would have been smothered by the crowd. So cardinals, literally cardinals, bishops, priests, and police 
would protect little diminutive Mother Teresa. And as I witnessed that in more recent years, Mother Teresa in America giving a public talk and how it wasn't so easy for people to get near her, I realized again what a privilege it was to hang out with her at her house where there were no bodyguards, there was no police, there were no cardinals or bishops, it was just Susan and Mother Teresa, you know, just to sit with her at her house. And I remember even when I would visit Mother Teresa in New York City, serving our country's poorest of the poor in Harlem and in the South Bronx, that I'd have time alone with Mother Teresa. And I remember one time in the South Bronx at her convent, Mother Teresa came out with a tray serving me tea and cookies. <laughs> you know, it's like these beautiful special moments for the saint. And I kept thinking, you know, I was just in my 20s. I should be serving you, Mother, not you serving Susan. You know, it should be the other way around. But such this loving friendship, this loving time together with Mother at her house and serving the poor and, and um, in the chapel. And people used to always wonder, how did, how did this even begin? As you heard Dr. O'Donnell say in the introduction, I, I met Mother Teresa between my junior and senior years at Dartmouth College. I had just celebrated my birthday. I had just turned 21 years old when I flew across the planet and showed up at Mother Teresa's doorstep. And people would ask, how did you even think of doing such a thing as going to help Mother Teresa in Calcutta, India? And someone even asked me once when I gave a talk, someone raised their hand and said, did any of your other brothers and sisters do anything like this? Because I'm from a big family, I'm one of 10 children, I'm number seven. So did your other brothers and sisters go to Haiti to help the poor? Did they go to India to help the poor? Did they do anything like this? And I had to answer very honestly, no, they're all normal. You know, <laughs> My brothers and sisters are normal and I have to admit that that as a 21-year-old going off to the slums of India alone to work with a saint in a home for the dying isn't normal. It, it, and it wasn't even normal for Susan, you know, in the sense that I'm a homebody. I love being in Maine. I live within walking distance of the ocean. I love my brothers and sisters. I love familiar surroundings. I love natural beauty, you know, looking out at the ocean or the mountains or just natural beauty. And, and so the fact that I was even desiring to go to India to work among, among destitution and, and poverty and suffering and disease wasn't something I would naturally desire to do or normally desire to do. And, and I'm going to share with you how that all started by saying, actually, quite simply, it all started with my mom. You know, I love being able to share that. It started with mama, <laughs> my mom. When I was away at college, my mother used to write to me all the time, at least once a week. And I went to my mailbox and pulled out an envelope from my mother, loving letters from home, letting me know what was happening back home in Maine, what was happening with my brothers and sisters. And one day, as I was walking back to my dormitory room and opening up a letter from mom, I was very surprised because mom had torn a page from a magazine with a beautiful painting of Mother Teresa, a profile of Mother Teresa with her hands folded in prayer, and beautiful words on joy by Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And Mother Teresa, on this piece of paper that mom tore out of the magazine, said, joy is strength, joy is prayer, joy is love. Joy is a net of love by which you can catch souls. Mother Teresa said, we give most when we give with joy. She said, the best way to show your gratitude to God and to each other is to accept everything with joy, because a joyful heart is the inevitable result of a heart burning with love. Then she said something that I thought was so beautiful. Again, I was about 19 or 20 at the time when I read these first words by Mother Teresa of Calcutta that were sent to me at college by my mom. At the end of this little quote by Mother Teresa, these words on joy, Mother Teresa said something that I have always cherished. Mother Teresa said, 
We all long for heaven where God is. We all want to be happy with God even here and now. And Mother Teresa said, we can be. We can be happy with him right now by loving as he loves, serving as he serves, giving as he gives, rescuing as he rescues, being with God for all the 24 hours of the day, and even touching him in his distressing disguise of the poor. I don't know why, but ever since I was a young girl, I've always loved the thought of heaven and being near God and being able to see God. And all of a sudden, I'm learning from Mother Teresa that we can be with God even now. We don't have to wait till heaven. We can experience heaven on earth. But again, her secret, Mother Teresa's secret was, give yourself, pour yourself out for those in need, rescue people, help people, serve people, and, and you will be happy with God even in this life. And these words were so inspiring to me. Like I said, they were the very first words I ever read in my life by Mother Teresa of Calcutta, sent to me by mom. And I taped this piece of paper with Mother Teresa's painting and these words on joy up on my wall at college. And even though I was studying economics and things that had nothing to do with joy, <laughs> you know, I found great inspiration from this beautiful quote by a saint, by a living saint, Mother Teresa of Calcutta. But it never crossed my mind that I might someday meet Mother Teresa, become friends with Mother Teresa, or work with Mother Teresa. I came home from New Hampshire, from Hanover, New Hampshire, from college on Christmas vacation back home to Maine. And on the coffee table in the living room, for the first time in my life, was a set of three little books by Mother Teresa of Calcutta that my mom had ordered. <laughs> and uh, mom would order holy books and just leave them around the house. For She never told any of her children to read these books. She would just leave them around the house. <laughs> and I have to say that books have changed my life. Books have changed my life. When I was about 12 years old, in the den, I found a book that mom had ordered called The Sun Danced at Fatima. And ever since then, I've had such a tender love for the Immaculate Heart of Mary, for our Blessed Mother Mary. And, and, um, and then she'd leave other holy books, and I'd pick them up, and they would change my life and my spirituality. These books changed my life. This is where the dream began. This is what planted the seeds in my heart of someday I want to help Mother Teresa serve the poorest of the poor in the home for the dying. And I picked up these books. I couldn't put them down. I read page after page. And this is where I learned about the poverty and suffering and, and destitution in Calcutta, India. This is where I learned about Mother Teresa's intense spiritual life, her, her such rock-solid faith in Jesus Christ and true devotion to the Blessed Mother and living our faith so beautifully that she didn't need to talk about it. Just look at her life. She's living our Catholic faith so marvelously she didn't need words. And, um, but I remember at that time when I started, after reading these books, started dreaming of working with Mother Teresa and trying to f recognize Jesus in his distressing disguise of the poorest of the poor. I remember I didn't dare to tell my college friends at first that I would like to go volunteer in the Home for the Dying in Calcutta. I truly thought my friends would think I was crazy. You know, why would you ever want to leave Maine in the summer? You know, the beaches of Maine and your family and friends and fun and spend a summer in a home for the dying, sweating in Calcutta. And the first person I mentioned this dream to was my mom. I said, Mom, what would you think, <laughs> you know, if I earned the money and sent myself to Calcutta to help Mother Teresa volunteer in the home for the dying, to serve the poor in the home for the dying? I will never in my life forget my mother's reaction. My mom said to me, that would be my worst nightmare. <laughs> that would be my worst nightmare. She was horrified that I would even think of doing such a thing as going over to India to volunteer in a home for the dying. And I almost felt like saying, but mom, you did it. You know, 
you sent me the beautiful words on joy by Mother Teresa, and, and Mom, you, you ordered these beautiful books that planted the seed in my heart to help Mother Teresa to serve the poorest of the poor. When I saw my mother's reaction, she was silent for three days. She didn't even speak for three days, which is so unlike my mother. You know, she was so full of fear. You know, she was so concerned for her daughter. And I realized what a natural reaction of a mother. You know, mothers, part of the duty of a mother is to protect her children, to take care of her children, nurture them, but protect her children. And to have her child go to the other side of the planet to work among disease and death and danger the other thing, too, is mom never flew in her life. She never dared to fly. And so if anything happened to me in India, she doesn't get on planes. You know, it's like this helpless feeling of a mother. You know, when her daughter says, I'd like to go to India, it crushed the dream in my heart because I only wanted to help people. I didn't want to hurt anybody. And the last person on this, in this world that I would ever want to hurt would be my beloved mom. And um, I remember trying to crush the dream or it being pulverized by mom's reaction. But when I went back to campus at Dartmouth and resumed my studies, it came back. This desire to serve Jesus in his distressing disguise of the poor with a saint, with Mother Teresa and the Missionaries of Charity. And I knew then this wasn't just Susan's will. This was a seed planted in my heart by God, and I couldn't stop it. <laughs> you know, even my mother's worry couldn't crush this. I was drawn to Calcutta. I was called to Calcutta. And, uh, and in these books is also where I learned that Mother Teresa welcomed anyone with hands to serve and a heart to love to join her in her work for the poor, the sick, and the dying. I'm going to say those words again because I think they're so beautiful. Mother Teresa welcomed anyone with hands to serve and a heart to love to come and share her work for the poorest of the poor. And I remember as a young college girl looking down at my hands and thinking, I have two strong hands. Maybe I can change the diapers of the babies in the orphanage. And I have my health and my strength, a young college girl. I, maybe I can feed some of the men and women dying in the home for the dying. Mother Teresa made it sound so easy. If you have hands to serve and a heart to love, there was actually only one other thing you needed to help a saint, to help do this ministry of love, this mission of love. You had to come with joy. You had to come with a smile, come with a sense of humor, come with cheerfulness. You couldn't come in a grumpy mood, you know? She would send you home. <laughs> and the reason is, Mother Teresa herself would say, the people that we are loving and serving are mentally ill, they're physically ill, these are abandoned babies, these are lepers, these are people lifted out of gutters that are dying and in their final agony. She said if we went to them with a sad face, we would only make them more depressed. So come with joy, come with a smile. Mother Teresa used to say, you will never know just how much good even a simple smile can do. You know, radiating God's love, be the sunshine of God's love everywhere you go. You can't imagine the goodness you can do smiling on those around you, especially those in need. And I realized as I pondered her words on joy, the truth and the beauty of her words, so simple, even a child could understand her words. But just think about it for a minute. Mother Teresa's Home for the Dying, what poor, emaciated, dying man in his final agony would want a depressed volunteer wallowing in misery trying to feed him his final meal? I mean, I realized I wouldn't be able to lift him out of his suffering if I was depressed trying to take care of him. And it's just such a simple lesson, come with joy, come with laughter. Um, but like I said, I, I ended up flying across the world 
showing up at Mother Teresa's doorstep as a 21-year-old college student and offering my hands with the dream of working alongside a saint, with the dream of working along Mother, Teresa, Mother Teresa's sides. And um, I love to share, too, um, people, ever since I stepped foot on American soil after my first trip to India, um, people have always asked, what is she like? What is Mother Teresa like? And, and I'll tell you that my very first impression of Mother Teresa was a lasting impression throughout all the 11 years that I knew her and was with her either in Calcutta or New York City or Massachusetts, wherever I saw her. My very first time seeing Mother Teresa, I was struck by her profound humility. I couldn't believe how humble she was. And I think the reason I was shocked by her humility is because I knew when I was flying across the world that I was about to meet a celebrity. I was about to meet someone who's world famous, world famous. And I never equated fame with humility. You know, you think of professional athletes or politicians or just movie stars. And usually famous people aren't the most humble people in the world. And those two don't usually go together. And it's a special grace of God to have someone who's so famous to retain that beautiful virtue of humility. And as I was with her, I almost felt like telling her, don't you realize how important you are? <laughs> you know, Don't you realize how famous you are? As if she didn't know or didn't care. I don't know which one it was but she didn't seem to realize that she was, she was so important in the world. She was so profoundly humble, and in her chapels throughout the world, and certainly in Calcutta, India, uh, Mother Teresa and her missionaries of charity take a solemn vow of poverty and live it to the hilt. And so when you step into their chapels, there are no chairs, no pews, no anything, no seats, and you'd kneel and sit on the floor, on a big cement floor. And Mother Teresa, I was 21 at the time, and she was 75 years old at the time I first met her, almost 76. And she was right down on her knees beside me at mass every single morning. And, and um, just her humility, she'd, she would scrub the floor on her hands and knees still in her 70s. And she used to always tell us, never drift away from the humble works. Never drift away from the works that nobody else wants to do. Because there are many people in this world that want to do important work, you know, very big, important projects. But very few that want to do the lowly work and the humble work. And she said, don't ever drift away from the humble works. And, when I was witnessing her any of any time throughout the summers, throughout the you know the time I was with her anywhere, I realized, especially that first summer in India, that humility is a sign of true greatness. That really struck me. Humility is a sign of true greatness, and it also struck me that humility is one of the things that makes us most Christ-like. You know, he's the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and. When I was a little girl in elementary school, I don't know if you ever heard this phrase before, but if there was a boy walking around the schoolyard with his shoulders back and his chest out thinking he was so cool, the other kids would say, he seems to think he's God's greatest gift to mankind. You know, I don't know if you've heard that phrase, but I remember as an elementary school child thinking, you know, he seems to think he's God's greatest gift to mankind. And in more recent years, I realized Jesus Christ is God's greatest gift to mankind, hands down. And yet Jesus, if anyone could walk the face of this earth with his shoulders back and his chest out and say, I'm number one, it would be Jesus. He could have said that because it's the truth. He is number one. He is the best. He's the son of God, you know, Christ Almighty. But he did exactly the opposite, which is stunning. The only one who's the greatest gift to mankind humbled himself, took the form of a slave, emptied himself, was obedient even unto death, the most humiliating death on a cross. And he taught us, you know, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And from his birth to his death, you know, just total humility. And, and you know so well that Jesus said, learn from me from gentle and humble of heart. And 
I've realized in looking at Mother Teresa and studying the saints throughout the years, as um, the saints tell us, humility is foundational to all other virtues. You've got to get that part right, you know, because it's foundational and you build all the other virtues on top of humility. If you don't have humility, you have nothing on which to build. And, and again, it's, a, it's something that makes us most like our Savior, most like Christ, who taught us to be humble, be gentle and humble of heart. And, and it was just stunning to witness someone. I realized after being in the presence of Mother Teresa throughout those years that sadly, humility is a rare pearl in the world today. It, it's rare to see that kind of genuine humility, that kind of pure humility. It, it's so beautiful. And think about it too. Mother Teresa, again, was world famous. She has shelters for the poorest of the poor in over 120 countries around the world. She's the foundress of this huge order. And, Nobel Peace Prize winner and all of this, people would praise her all the time for the work she was doing. And, and, uh, and yet Mother Teresa would always say when they'd praise her work, she'd always say, it's God's work. It wasn't her work, it was God's work. Someone actually asked Mother Teresa, what will happen to your work when you die? I couldn't believe someone asked her that to her face. <laughs> it seems so bold. What will happen to your work when you die? And Mother Teresa said, the work will go on because it isn't my work, it's God's work. And she considered herself a pencil in the hand of God, a little pencil in the hand of God. And not only a little pencil, I mean, not even a pen, but a humble pencil, but not even just that. She considered herself a broken pencil in the hand of God. And it's stunning to ponder that, that when you're in the hands of Almighty God, whether you're an old paintbrush or a humble pencil, it, God can do marvelous things with that. God, God is the artist. Beauty lies in the touch of the master's hand. You know, God can make a masterpiece as long as you stay in the hands of God. He can use you and he can do marvelous things with you. Even if you're broken or, you know, weak or imperfect, God can use you. I want to, again, after just touching upon the humility, I want to bring you to India. And um, every single morning during my time in Calcutta, I volunteered at a children's orphanage, Mother Teresa's children's orphanages. And there was one that was just down the street from Mother Teresa's house. Every morning I worked in the orphanage, and every afternoon I volunteered in Mother Teresa's Home for the Dying. In the orphanage, we took care of abandoned and malnourished children. And I love to share my first impression of the orphanage. I stepped inside Mother Teresa's children's home, and I saw an entire room full of little toddlers sitting lifelessly on a cement floor. Beautiful little babies just sitting lifelessly on a cement floor staring up at me from the floor. No one was talking, no one was laughing, no one was playing. And I thought, they seem so unchildlike to me, as if their problems weighed too heavily on their minds. You know, I'm from a big family, I've got a lot of nieces and nephews, and usually when you put children together in a room, there's a lot of talking and laughing. It's hard to keep little children quiet when you put them together. Ask any kindergarten teacher, you know, it's, it, you know, they love to laugh and play. And so it really touched me that these little babies, these little children, weren't laughing. After a few minutes in Mother Teresa's or children's orphanage, a baby girl on the floor started crying. So I went up to her and I picked up this little baby. Immediately when I touched her, she stopped crying. And so I'm walking around the orphanage my very first day, volunteering, and I was so happy, I was so content that I comforted my first child, you know? I was there to lighten the suffering, and I had just lightened my first bit of suffering, you know? And, um, but then after about five minutes, a little baby boy on the floor starts crying. And I thought, uh-oh, I thought the whole orphanage would start crying at the same time, and I only have two hands to serve. I can't pick them all up at the same time. The reason I share this story with you is because I will never in my life forget that experience of trying to put the baby girl back down on the floor so that I can now pick up the little boy who's crying. The little girl in my arms was clinging to me, clinging around my neck, and she wouldn't let go.
as if she was afraid that when I put her back down on the floor, it might be a while before anyone came and held her again. And I learned an important lesson within five minutes of volunteering in Mother Teresa's Children's Orphanage that my most important job, more important than feeding the children or changing their diapers or giving them medicine, my most important job was love, 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 to touch them and cuddle them and hug them. Because I watched each day in the orphanage, these children have enough food to eat every day, but they're all hungry for love. They're all starving for the human touch. And that was my number one job, just keep hugging them, keep touching them. And I realize as I get older that little babies and little children, that's the absolute number one thing they need to survive is, is love. You know, they don't even need clothes to survive. I, I like to point out little baby boys prefer not to have clothes, as a matter of fact. You know, they'd rather run around naked. They don't need clothes, but every child, boy and girl, every child needs love. They need the human touch. And, Keep in mind, in the orphanage, a lot of these babies were abandoned, so there's no mummy and daddy to hug and kiss them. The only affection they're getting is whatever I give them, whatever the sisters and volunteers give them. That's it, and they're starving for it. They're starving. I'll tell you um, quickly, a pretty special store in the orphanage. The children were all different ages, from tiny, tiny little fragile newborns to you know, like eight years old, nine years old, and there was one little child that the other, he was about eight years old in the orphanage, and I remember Paul from Sweden referred to this little eight-year-old boy as the little terrorist, you know, understandably so. <laughs> this little eight-year-old boy would all of a sudden open up his eyes really wide, let out a shrill, unnerving laugh as if he was afflicted with insanity, and he would attack whoever was in front of him, kicking and biting and scratching. He would have these attacks where he would hurt people. And people were afraid of the little terrorist. Nobody went near this little boy. Even the volunteers didn't go near the terrorist. And I remember one day in the orphanage, at the end of my first summer, I turned and saw the little terrorist coming right at me for the first time ever with that look in his eyes that he was going to attack me. And I had to think quickly, what am I going to do? This has never happened to me before. I've never been terrorized by an eight-year-old boy <laughs> or anybody. And I only had a few seconds as he's approaching me to attack me. And all I could think of as a reaction was love, <laughs> love. Before he got, as he got close enough, I reached out and grabbed him and pulled him to my heart and hugged this little eight-year-old boy. And I was stunned. My little terrorist was completely disarmed and pacified and awestruck. And he looked up at me with big brown eyes as if to say, no one has ever done that to me before. No one had ever hugged him before. My little terrorist was so transformed, he became the sweet, gentle-natured little boy. Every day after that hug, he would come up to me, take time out from whatever he was doing, even from playing. He would come up to me, and as if to say, whatever you did to me yesterday, could you do that again? You know, he didn't even know what a hug was. But he liked it, and he would come just for that little bit of affection that nobody gave him. Nobody gave him. Mother Teresa taught us all to have love greater than fear. Always have love greater than fear. You know, anyone who, you know, you consider a terrorist or a bully or anything in your life, treat them with kindness. Treat them with extra love because that's probably why they're being mean in the first place because there's something unsatisfied in their own heart. And those are the types of human beings that need more love than the rest of us, the ones who are behaving that way. And it was just a very powerful story. Another very quick story is, there was, um, I took care of the sick children in the orphanage. There was a section of the children's home with especially handicapped little ones, very severely handicapped. And um, I noticed in the section where I mostly volunteered, 
if you tickled the child, the child would laugh. If you hugged the child, the child would hug you back, you know. And it was so easy to take care of these gorgeous, gorgeous babies and children because they were so responsive to our love. But then someone showed me the severely handicapped section of the orphanage, and I remember standing over a crib of a, of a child who was so handicapped, the little one just stared off into space to the ceiling and twitched. And as I tried to caress this little child's arms, the child couldn't respond. If you try to tickle, the child couldn't respond, so severely handicapped. And, and um, there was nothing, I was getting nothing back, no reaction back. And I remember Paul from Sweden, again, he said to me, he said, this requires more pure love. And I always remember that. This requires more pure love because you're giving and giving and giving and you're getting nothing back. And, and that's very beautiful. I mean, the saints would inspire us to, to practice pure love. I think it was St. John of the Cross that said, you know, a single act of pure love is more pleasing to God and of more value to the church than all other acts together, all other works together. One single act of pure love, you know, and, and so that's very special for us to keep in mind too. Go forth even if you're not getting anything back, even if you're getting rejection back or anything, you continue to love, and, and especially when it's pure love that you're giving to others. Um, I want to bring you into the home for the dying because I spent every afternoon in Mother Teresa's famous home for the dying with the children every morning and the dying every afternoon. You'd step into this famous shelter, into the men's section, and see rows upon rows of stretcher beds of dying, emaciated men like living skeletons. And you'd go into the women's section, same thing, rows upon rows of beds of dying women. And I remember Mother Teresa, her dream in her famous home for the dying was that every single person would die at peace with God and in sight of a loving face. That was her hope in the home for the dying. And the work was very simple and humble and basic. It involved feeding people that could no longer feed themselves. If a dying person was thirsty, you would get them a glass of water. If someone was chilled in their bed in India in the middle of the summer, you'd get them a blanket. If someone was in their final agony, you would hold their hand and be with them in their, in their suffering. And, and I, always, I think that's very powerful that what Mother Teresa was doing was not extraordinary. There was nothing extraordinary about the work. Giving someone a glass of water or a meal or a hand to hold, pretty basic, simple, ordinary things, but it was the love and the humility and the spirit with which she served the dying that was extraordinary. It was her love. You know, she herself would quote St. Therese of Lisieux in saying, just do small things with great love. Do ordinary things of everyday life with extraordinary love. Love, love, love. She, Mother Teresa would say, put love into everything you do and you will be fulfilling your vocation in life. You, you put love into everything you do and you'll be fulfilling your vocation. I remember in the Home for the Dying also that, like I said, some of the patients that could no longer feed themselves, we would feed them. But some of the patients were too emaciated even to be fed solid food anymore. And so the doctors or nurses would put tubes through their nostrils to their stomachs to give them nourishing fluid to sustain them if they couldn't take solid food. Now I remember one afternoon in the Home for the Dying, there was a gentleman, a dying gentleman, that kept vomiting in his bed. He couldn't hold down even the fluids, just even the liquids. And a couple of nurses called out in the Home for the Dying, is there anyone here who's willing to hold him up in a sitting position so that he can keep his fluid, keep being sustained instead of losing it? And I remember that afternoon my hand going up saying, I will do that, I'll hold him up. And all summer long I'd been able to sit at the bedsides of the dying patients, holding their hands and serving them. But this was a chance to really hold someone. And so I sat on his bed, on his humble cot in the Home for the Dying, and they leaned his body in a sitting position back against me as if I was a human chair. 
And so he, I'm sitting and he's sitting and leaning against my body and all afternoon I held him. And there too I will never in my life forget this experience of this handsome young gentleman from India looking up at me with again his big brown eyes and so much love and affection for me the entire afternoon that I held him. He kept caressing my hand. I never forgot. He kept caressing my hand as I'm holding him. And I kept thinking while he's taking care of me, who's taking care of whom here? Who's loving whom? You know, I thought I would go to India to help comfort and, and uplift and love the poorest of the poor. No one ever told me that as I tried to love, that I would be loved in return. St. Francis of Assisi said, it, it is in giving that we receive. Anyhow, back to this gentleman caressing my hand and looking up at me with so much affection and, and tenderness, he ended up dying that same night. And Sister Luke, the Sister Superior in the Home for the Dying, told me, Susan, he's your age. We're both 21 years old at the same time. He was dying like a skeleton, suffering and dying. And I was a young, healthy girl from America. And to me, that's like a picture of what life is all about. That just that simple image of those of us who are blessed with our health and our strength and our gifts serve, share it to uplift those that need to be lifted up and sustained and, and held and loved and cared for. You know, whatever you have, share it and give to those who have not. And it also taught me that even if you think you have nothing to share, like this poor soul that you'd think he had nothing left to give, he's dying in total destitution in his final agony, as if you'd think he would have nothing to give anyone, and instead he still had love. You always have love to give. And it reminds me of how Jesus Christ came into this world with nothing but love, and he left this world with nothing but love. There's a secret there, you know, this is why we exist, to love, to love and serve God whom we cannot see by loving and serving one another whom we can see. That's how we love God, by pouring it out onto those around us, especially the most afflicted and the most in need of our mercy, the most in need of our hands and our heart. One thing that was tough for me in the Home for the Dying was that um, as I'm feeding a dying man his evening meal, I could look down the rows of stretcher beds and see a dozen other pair of eyes of dying men wishing I would come and help them and take care of them. And I couldn't be 20 places at once, like with the orphanage. I can't pick them all up at the same time. I only have two hands. And it broke my heart that I can't be, help 10 people at the same time. One of the powerful lessons that Mother Teresa taught me was one, one, one. Just begin one person at a time. Put all your love and attention and care and respect and reverence into one human being at a time. You know, Mother Teresa said, if I hadn't picked up that first person off the streets of Calcutta, that first dying person off the streets of Calcutta, I wouldn't have picked up the 42,000 others. So even with Mother Teresa, it starts one person at a time. Never think it's too small, like what I'm doing is just one person at a time. That's beautiful, you know, small things with great love. Whoever God puts right in front of your path. And, and also, um, I think this is very powerful too. People used to ask Mother Teresa, how can you do it? How can you face such poverty, disease, death, suffering, agony, all of this stuff? every single day of your life without taking a vacation from it and not get depressed and not get discouraged, you know, not get burnt out. How do you do it, Mother Teresa? And I, I love her answer. It's very powerful for all of us. Mother Teresa said, my secret is quite simple. I pray. My secret is quite simple. I pray. Through prayer, we get in touch with the source of all life, all goodness, all holiness, 
all energy, all everything we could ever want, all grace, through prayer, we connect with this endless source of love and life. And um, God is an inexhaustible support source too. He never runs out of love. He never runs out of grace. And prayer connects us with that source, with, with God Almighty. Prayer is like plugging yourself into a spiritual outlet, you know? And I love these words. These are some of the first words I read by Mother Teresa when I read this first book by her. Love this. Mother Teresa used to compare human beings to wires or electrical cables. And this is what she said. I always love this image. Mother Teresa said, often you see small and big wires, new and old, cheap and expensive electric cables up. They alone are useless. And until the current passes through them, there will be no light. The wire is you and I. The current is God. We have the power to let the current pass through us and use us to produce the light of the world. Or we can refuse to be used and allow the darkness to spread. She said, my prayer is with each one of you, and I pray that each one of you will be holy. And so spread God's love everywhere you go. Let his light of truth be in every person's life so that God can continue loving the world through you and me. And then she said, put your heart into being a bright light in the world. And prayer was one of her secrets. As a matter of fact, I just flew in today to Washington, D.C. from Chicago. I had to give a talk to a large pro-life group in Chicago yesterday, 800 people at a banquet, just saving babies like you wouldn't believe. And it's called the Women's Center, and they've saved over 33,000 babies from abortion at the Women's Center in Chicago alone, just in downtown Chicago. And so I spoke at this banquet, and I was stunned as I went through their facility and, and met with them and see how they operate. Why are they so successful? Why are they so successful in saving babies and doing God's work? Daily mass at the center, perpetual adoration at the center where they're saving babies. They're praying like crazy. It's all about God. You know, it's all about God using us and shining through us. That's why they're succeeding. They're spreading the light and God is blessing the work because it isn't their work, it's God's work. Just like Mother Teresa, it's God's work. Um, I will share with you just quickly that Mother Teresa has radically changed my life. Being with a saint and working and serving the poor in India has radically changed my life. Um, and I'm going to explain that in just a second. But my first trip to India, where I spent the summer between my junior and senior years at Dartmouth with a, with a saint, with Mother Teresa doing this work, um, I came home and I had to then decide, find out what I was going to do with my life. And that's always kind of challenging for volunteers in Calcutta coming home to their own countries. And then what? And I was very fortunate because I still had one more year at Dartmouth. And I knew in my heart, finish what you began. You've done three years, finish it, you know? And so I had this purpose, I had this direction, and I went right back to Hanover, New Hampshire to finish my senior year at Dartmouth. The priest at our Aquinas house, St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic Student Center, found out I had just been with Mother Teresa, spent the summer in India, and been with Mother Teresa. And he said he had a friend in New Hampshire, a wealthy couple in New Hampshire, that would love to hear about my first-hand experience fresh from India with a saint because Mr. DeCarolis, the gentleman, always loved Mother Teresa and dreamed, you know, of someday meeting her or touching Mother Teresa. I got together with them, showed him my pictures of India, told him my stories, and Mr. DeCarolis said to me, is there any way you can introduce me to Mother Teresa? I was, you know, I'm 21 years old still. I, you know, can I introduce you to Mother Teresa? I'm in New Hampshire with him. I said, I'll do the best I can. So I went back to my dormitory room and called New York City, Missionaries of Charity, and I said, is Mother Teresa there? 
The next thing I know, I'm talking to Mother Teresa on the phone, and my roommates are like, no way. <laughs> You're talking to Mother Teresa in the dormitory room at college. It's like talking to the Pope, you know? Hi, Holy Father, you know? <laughs> my, my roommates were blown away, but I asked her, will you be there such and such a weekend? I, there's someone here that wants to meet you. And, and um, so I ended up flying down to New York City, and this husband and wife drove down to meet Mother Teresa. Well, this, I got there first, so I spent time with Mother Teresa, just the two of us in New York, and it changed my life again, because Mother Teresa, um, she was always having these conversations. I wasn't going to tell you this, but Mother Teresa had a couple of conversations with me about, what are you going to do with your life? She'd say, what are you going to do? And I remember the first time she asked me, when we were in Calcutta, again, 21, I said, oh, I'm going to follow my heart each step of the way, whatever God wants me to do. And that wasn't good enough for Mother Teresa. <laughs> She's very concrete. She's very practical. So this wishy-washy, follow-your-heart stuff, no. She said, marriage or religious life? <laughs> Let's get real. Let's get real. None of this up in the sky, follow my heart stuff. It's so, it was so funny, but um, why did I share that with you? But <laughs> oh. It's funny because the first time we had this conversation, um, then she says, okay, marriage or religious life. And I shared with her, I already shared with her that I was blessed with such an extraordinarily beautiful and holy mother that nothing crossed my mind except following in mom's footsteps as a wife and mother and having a family like mom. Because I'll tell you right now, personally speaking, my two favorite female role models my whole life, the two favorite feminine female role models are the sweet blessed mother Mary and my mom. What are they? Wives and mothers, you know? Living with a natural family, taking care of their spouse and their children. I want to follow their footsteps. And so naturally, I want to be like Our Lady and my mom and, and have a family. And well, when I flew down to New York, my purpose in my mind was only to introduce this couple to her. Uh, he, he said, I want to touch her, I want to speak with her. And he also wanted to give her a lifelong donation to help the poorest of the poor. So I was only a conduit. I was only there to introduce. But God's purpose was totally different. Since I had time alone with Mother Teresa, she told me to stay in the convent as a come and see, to see if I was called to the religious life. Well, that wasn't my plan, you know. But you couldn't say no to Mother Teresa. You couldn't. You couldn't say no to Mother Teresa. You almost felt like it would be saying no to God or something. She was so holy, so filled with Christ. And so I ended up living in the convent for a while as one of the missionaries of charity. And it was awesome. Remember I told you it was one of the highlights of my life. Remember I told you my first impression of her was this profound humility? You know, she was so contemplative. She was always thinking of Christ and praying to God, serving the poorest of the poor, you know, and dealing with others, whether it was her sisters or volunteers, others. But one of the secrets of how did she become so humble, I realized in the convent when I was living behind the scenes, behind the curtains, is I was there for weeks and I realized there are no mirrors in here. So when you brush your teeth at night, you're looking at a wall. You can't even floss. Have you ever tried to floss your teeth without looking? It's so hard. And, and for, so for two weeks, I never saw myself. And it was stunning. It was stunning. After a few days of not seeing yourself, you forget yourself. It was a really remarkable experience. I forgot myself. You never forget yourself unless you take out the mirrors, you know, it's like, especially if you're living an intensely spiritual life of intense prayer life and intense service life and you just totally lose sight. But, um, but anyway, that kind of seemed to me to contribute to her humility. But Mother Teresa influenced my life not only in spiritual ways, but also in uh, professional ways, vocational ways, radically changed my life. I don't know, I don't think I shared with you already 
that as an economics major at Dartmouth College, I was planning on going into the corporate world and having a very successful life and making huge money and settling down and having a family and, you know, the American dream, you know, the, you know, the lucrative career and all of that. But then after meeting a saint, being with Mother Teresa, when I came back from India, all I wanted to do was keep helping people. I, I, I was so fulfilled and so happy in India, I didn't want it to end even when I came home to America. And so I tried to continue living that intense spiritual life and that in intense life of service. And when I graduated from Dartmouth with that degree in economics, I just wanted to find out how can I serve, how can I help. And that's why I ended up, as Dr. O'Donnell said, at the Maine Children's Cancer Program, serving children with cancer from throughout the state of Maine. And uh, it's amazing because I've always loved this poem from Ralph Waldo Emerson, who described success. One of the lines of his poem when it came to success was, to know that even one life has breathed a little easier because you have lived. This is to have succeeded. I just love that. You know, it changed my definition of success, being with Mother Teresa, changed my definition of success. Also, as Dr. O'Donnell mentioned, Mother Teresa, before she was called home to God, gave me permission to write a book about my work with her in India. Um, I'm not a writer, I'm an economics major, but Mother Teresa, a saint, told me to write this book for the glory of God and for the good of souls. And um, so I put my heart into it. And um, I have to share with you, God has such a sense of humor and God, life is full of surprises and God is full of surprises. Because in high school, I'm gonna tell you, I dreamed of getting into an Ivy League college. And so I really worked hard in high school during those four years to get really excellent grades. Really studied hard. My worst grade in all three years of high school was advanced placement English, a writing course. And I kept getting C's, and I wasn't used to getting C's because I'm trying to do, you know, trying to do the best I can. And so I always felt completely handicapped when it came to writing because Mr. Burroughs didn't like my writing. Whatever I wrote or rewrote, I kept getting C's. So I thought I'll go into math and science then, you know, because Mr. Burroughs is obviously teaching me I can't write. And uh, so it's funny, then a saint tells me to write, and as Dr. O'Donnell said, turned into an instant bestseller. And um, so now I can't rest at all. <laughs> I travel around the country into other countries giving talks about my work with Mother Teresa. And, um, but also another profound way that Mother Teresa changed my life is not only I can't rest anymore because I travel around sharing my experiences with her, but also during that come and see in New York where I was living in the convent, part of what the sisters do during their day, besides serving the poorest of the poor, attending daily mass, daily holy hour of adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, Part of what they have for a half hour each day is spiritual reading. Well, I'm the new girl in the convent, and I had to go to the bookshelf and find a book, and I went right to the complete spiritual doctrine of St. Therese of Lisieux, the little flower. I had known for years that Mother Teresa took her name after St. Therese, the little one. People would ask her, who did you take your name after? Because she was Agnes when she grew up. And when she became 18 and entered the religious life, she had to choose a saint's name. And people would say, is it the great St. Teresa of Avila or the little St. Therese of Lisieux? And Mother Teresa would always say, the little one. And, uh, so I was always curious, who's this little Therese that inspired Mother Teresa herself? And because I was in the convent with Mother Teresa, I took a hold of this book, changed my life. It changed my life. I ended up going home and reading the story of a soul. I don't know if you've read it. I strongly encourage you to get to know the little flower and have friends in high places. But the little flower just took a hold of my heart and never let go. She, she's like that. And, and um, she mentioned, this is where I'm going with this, that St. Therese in her wildly famous autobiography, Story of a Soul, it's in over 60 languages around the world. You know, it's been a bestseller, a Catholic bestseller for over 100 years. That's how popular this is. She was only 24 when she was called home to God, and yet she's called the greatest saint of modern times. 
because she had attained such heights of holiness and wisdom and love. And, um, and her autobiography is, is really promoting that. But in her autobiography, wildly famous, over 100 years ago, St. Therese mentioned three books that had the greatest influence on her life and spirituality. Number one was sacred scripture, the Gospels. She knew those Gospels, you know, like you wouldn't believe. Number two book that had an influence on the little flower was The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. Therese, growing up, carried that book with her everywhere she went, had it memorized cover to cover, and her family as a young girl, teenager growing up, when she had family gatherings, they would be entertained by saying, Therese, tell us from memory, book two, chapter three, without even looking, she could recite the whole chapter. You know, she knew it by heart, and so I went out and bought that book powerful spiritual reading. But then there was this third mysterious book that she mentioned that she said, reading this was one of the greatest graces of my life. And she went on and on about how this gave her a foretaste of the happiness in heaven and, and um, made her realize reading this book that nothing we suffer on earth even comes close to the reward of those who love God in everlasting life. So don't worry about the suffering and sacrifice in this life. The reward is awesome, you know, and, and the book is called, I like to, I love the title of this book, The End of the Present World and the Mysteries of the Future Life, and uh, written in 1881. And to me, this is what catapulted her into Carmel, into the Carmelite Monastery. Reading this book had such a profound influence on her she read it when she was 14 years old, and right after reading it, she asked her papa, her dad, if she could enter the convent. And she even went about asking bishops and the pope himself, please, can I enter the Carmelite monastery at the age of 15, which was unheard of. They didn't allow young girls like that age to enter. But this book really, again, in her own words, and, and I searched for it for seven years and found one copy in the whole world after searching for this lost treasure for seven years, one copy in its original French. A Carmelite priest mailed it to me from California. <laughs> I felt like saying, do you realize how rare this is? You just put it in the mail to me in Maine. So I spent years trying to translate it. Just came out last year, turned into a huge bestseller. And, and I am very excited about it because clearly this book helped St. Therese to become a saint. Many other things did too, her intense spiritual life, her family upbringing and all of that, but this book had an influence on her spirituality and on her desire for holiness, for sanctity. And I, I long for it to have the same effect in America on people of our time, in our country. It's the first time in over 100 years that it's available in English in the United States of America. So that's incredibly exciting to me. And, um, and as you heard too in the introduction, because of these books, which I never intended to write, and I fell into all these opportunities to translate books from French into English, going on high school French, four years of French in high school. People always think that when I translate books that I must have mastered in it and majored in it in college. Four years in high school. <laughs> God is so funny, I think. He's, life is so full of surprises. I say to Therese, couldn't you have found someone better qualified in 100 years than me? You know, <laughs> you know I'm sure they were better qualified. But I'm going to tell you, I honestly think she knew how much I love her. And sometimes, you know, that's more important to Little Flower than the fancy qualifications. She knows how much I love her and how much I love our faith and, and the message and getting the message out there. But because of these books, um, I fell into opportunities to do shows on EWTN and to have my own miniseries. And the miniseries is called Speaking of Saints. Because of the books I write and translate and the TV shows that I, that I do on EWTN, I have had to study holiness. Or I just happened to fall into this vocation, if you will, of studying saints. 
when it, I was a 21-year-old in the presence of a saint, you're so idealistic and you're so sensitive and you're so perceptive, and it was just the ideal time for me to be in the presence of Mother Teresa to notice every word she said and every action she did and, and take note of it in my mind, heart, and in my diary. And, um, and I'm convinced all of us should study holiness. It's, as you know so well here at Christendom College, we're all called to be saints. Every single one of us here this evening is called to great heights of holiness, to call to be a saint. So it's important to understand what is it, because it's your duty. You know, Mother Teresa used to say, holiness is not the luxury of a few. Holiness is not the luxury of a few nuns and priests. Holiness is a simple duty for you and for me. We're all, we're all called to that. And so I like to even listen to, how do you even describe holiness? What is holiness? If we're all by duty called to it, be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy, God said in sacred scripture, what is holiness? And, and I love the little flowers definition is, is holiness consists in doing God's will and being what God wants us to be. And I love too thinking of St. Paul, I believe it's St. Paul's word and Dr. O'Donnell can correct me if I'm wrong, but talks about holiness is being filled with the fullness of God. I love that. Holiness is being filled with the fullness of God. St. Paul definitely said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is, let Christ live in you. And, and uh, St. John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. You know, this is part of the process. But in order to be live, filled with the living presence of God, in order to be filled with Christ, you have to empty yourself of what is not God. You have to empty your heart of useless desires and distractions and worldliness. And, and that's the tough part. Mother Teresa used to say, even God Almighty can't fill what's already full. So if you're full of yourself, <laughs> God can't fill you. God can't fill you if you're full of yourself. And we have to go through this process of, of emptying ourselves so that we can be filled with Christ and filled with God. And, and um, it's interesting. I don't know if any of you have been watching it or if you're too busy with your studies, but um, the Olympics is on right now. And, and it's stunning to watch the determination and the focus and the perseverance of some of the Olympic athletes. And there's so many similarities to, what, to the virtues that they're practicing to be, get in the Olympics and the virtues that we're supposed to be practicing to become saints. You know, you look, at, you look at their focus, you look at their discipline, you look at their training, you look at their sacrifice, you look at how they seem to, they're overcoming seemingly insurmountable obstacles. I don't know how much you've been watching, but I'm watching people doing mogul skiing that have had six surgeries on their knees, but they're determined to conquer it. One of the mogul skiers broke his back, and he was determined to get back on skis, and he's in the Olympics now. And one after the other just overcame. They're so focused on the goal. And I just want us, let's not limp towards heaven. Let's run towards the goal. You know, put your whole heart into it. St. Therese of Lisieux didn't want to be a half-baked saint. She didn't want to be a saint in halves. Go all the way, you know, especially this week with the Olympics. Go for the gold. You're called to go for the gold and let nothing deter you. And learn from the example of the athletes and anyone who's successful in life. There are some common you know, qualities in each one. Whether you're intellectually successful, in business successful, you know, athletically successful, the focus, the determination, the willing to sacrifice, put your whole heart into it like the little flower did for holiness. You know? Go for it, run towards the goal, as St. Paul said. Um, I think you can probably tell that I love Mother Teresa, and I can go on and on, but I think I'm probably well beyond my time now. So I just want to take a minute to tell you a couple of very quick things and then end with a prayer and actually open it up in case anyone has any questions. Number one is Mother Teresa, I learned from Mother Teresa when I was in college, and this had a huge influence on my life too. 
Mother Teresa reminded us, like other saints, that at the end of our lives, we will not be judged on what kind of car we drove, how much money we made, or how many degrees we earned. At the end of our lives, we'll be judged on love, on how well we put our love into living action. And another powerful thing that really influenced my life was a young woman from America wrote to Mother Teresa and said, may I come to Calcutta to help you serve the poorest of the poor? And Mother Teresa wrote back to her and said, stay where you are, find your own Calcutta. Find the sick, the suffering, the lonely, anyone in need, right where you are, in your own college community, in your own home, and in your own family. Have eyes that see, be looking through the eyes of love. Do you know of anyone depressed? Do you know of anyone lonely? Do you know of anyone with cancer? She would challenge us, find them, love them, put your love for them into living action. Become a channel of God's peace right where you are, Christendom College, and in your own families. You know, love, love, love. That's what the final exam is on, is love. If you want to pass a test and get into heaven, I mean, know what the, is going to be on the test. It's about putting our love, putting our faith into action, which is loving one another. Christ was repeating, love one another, love one another. Show mercy to those who are most in need of mercy.